Imagine being a young teenager thrown in jail, not once, but twice, and then getting kicked out of your own state, not because of any laws you broke, but because of your strong convictions. That's what happened to a Macomb native who has since told her story in the book, Mississippi Exiled Daughter, How My Civil Rights Baptism Under Fire Shaped My Life. Brenda Travis, I'm very glad you're here today to tell your story because it is an incredible story. And I'm trying to think probably the best place to start with it would be I guess when you were really young, how old were you when your dad left? And tell those circumstances because they, it still blows my mind why he had to leave Mississippi. I didn't have an age at that time. Okay. I was still in my mother's womb. Oh, you were not even born yet. Okay. I was not born yet. Yeah. My, my, after my dad married my mother, mm -hmm. um, and he, they, he, he moved up into the Delta part of the state and became a sharecropper. And they were in Itabina, I believe that's, mm -hmm. uh, and he uh, said that uh, he was in the field chopping cotton. And the owner of the plantation came out and inquired, where is Icy? That's my mother's mm -hmm. name. And he told her, he said, well, Mr. Moon, he said, my wife is about to drop her load. The man became infuriated. He left the field and he had killed many a black men. Mm -hmm. He left the field to go get his gun to kill my dad. Well, he left going to his house to get his gun. My dad left the field to go and get his wife and yeah. he went on the run. So therefore, it caused a separation in my family, yeah. but it wasn't the traditional type of separation where right. a man just departs. And, and my dad stayed and went on the run for an, a number of years and never came back until later years. Yeah, did you ever reconnect with him? Because I, I know at one point you were, you were looking to do that. I located his sister in Chicago and she was the one that connected me with my dad in uh, Louisiana. How old were you when, when you found him? I was 32. Wow, okay. Mm -hmm. What was his reaction? It's like, hi, Dad. He was happy to be reunited with sure. his family. Mm -hmm. um, he, it was a very emotional time for him and for us. Yeah, I could imagine. Um, he didn't want to fly, and I insisted because I was anxious. <laughs> well, that, that sounds familiar because I think the, the apple didn't fall far from the tree there because yeah. you don't like to fly either. So. Not anymore, but he had never flown. Never flown, yeah. And um, I was anxious, and I insisted on him flying. And when we met him at the plane at, at Los Angeles LAX, he came off, and he looked at all of us, and he became so emotional. Oh. He broke down and cried and said, Lord, have mercy. My prayers have been answered. Oh, that is amazing. You know, I've always, I prayed to God before I leave this earth that, to allow me to reunite with my family. Well, let's talk about your mom, too, because, I mean, did she go from there down to the Macomb area, or how? That's where, when he went on the run, 
that he brought her back to Macomb. That's mm -hmm. where he found her. That's where they fell in love. That's where they got married. So he brought her back to Macomb to our family there. Mm -hmm. you moved into a house, a two-bedroom house. It was your mom, your your grandmother, and your six your siblings. Yes. And you have what six? Um, there were seven of us, but then um, there was always that extension of family, mm -hmm. which we had, and there were always cousins, which uh, we all stayed in this two-bedroom home. It had, um, it was two bedrooms, and it had a living room, a dining room, and a kitchen. So those, the living room and the dining room became bedroom space at night. It was just beautiful, and I still reflect on that sometimes now, you know, the closeness that we had. And in my heart, you know, I feel joyful, I feel happy, even though we were poor and destitute, didn't have anything, but we didn't know we were poor. As I was reading the book and I was trying to see how, what, what makes you tick, there were life events that happened along the way that I think made you do what you did, but I think your brother, um, what happened to him had to be one of the real tipping points. Tell us that story. Absolutely. At the age of 10, as I said, I was born in 1945 and Emmett Till was killed in 1955. Right. I was only 10 years old at that time. I saw the magazine. Hmm. I was horrified at what I saw in the magazine, this body of Emmett Till that didn't look like anything that was ever human. Right. The way it was beaten and battered and mutilated. And that, that I, I won't forget, I don't think I'll ever forget the fear that ripped through me. That was the end of your childhood. That was, it was like not having an age of innocence. Right. You know, we went to, from innocent, innocent to feeling that, you know, you had to grow up and be something and do something different. A few days after seeing the picture of Emmett Till in the, in the uh, Jet magazine, the police, the authorities, mm -hmm. came into our home and no knock. During that time, they didn't have to respect you and I guess maybe still the same remains now. They yanked my brother up and took him away. Why? And the only thing I could think about was Emmett Till. Yeah. You never thought you were going to see him again, did I you? I never thought I would see my brother alive, breathing, and living again. But later that afternoon or evening, it wasn't afternoon, it was evening at dusk dark when they released my brother and we saw him coming down the road home. My brother never, ever, talked about his experience with them. He said that they told him, do not talk about it. Wow. 
And it was later years that he even told us that much, that they had forbid him to discuss it. And they told him, he said that they told him that it was a mistaken identity. Now, telling him that it was a mistaken identity, yeah. I feared that God had to be in the plan because they said all of us look alike. So he could have very well been Emmett Till or the like Emmett Till. You obviously decided that you were going to um, stand up for what was right. Uh, Wednesday, August 30th, 1961, you were 16. You and Ike Lewis uh, decided to go do a sit-in. Yes, um, Ike Lewis, Bobby Talbert, mm -hmm. um, Hollis Watkins and Curtis Hayes had already sat in at the great, I mean, I'm sorry, at the F.W. Woolworth store. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but, but we uh, went to the Greyhound Bus Company to test the interstate commerce law. And I guess with Hollis and Curtis being arrested a few days prior, it, they were on high alert. You were seemed. arrested pretty quickly too, yes, weren't you? Yeah. We were that's what I said. They were on high alert. Yeah. They were expecting something. They didn't know what, but it was all in the air. The energy was in the air. Yeah. Yeah. Like a static charge almost. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so uh, we, we went into the white side of the Greyhound bus station and to purchase tickets to go. We had two choices. Keep in mind, this was test of the interstate commerce law. Sure. It's to either go to Louisiana or Tennessee. But we didn't have the opportunity to purchase the tickets to tell them where we were going because the police uh, station, Macomb City Hall, was just around the corner from the bus station. <laughs> and then you spent 28 days in jail. And I spent 28 days in jail. Which, I mean, you were 16 years old. Yeah, that I was, was 16. You were 16, and they threw you in jail that long. And then there was a march in October where y'all you and several other people were, were were protesting that, and you got arrested again. I got arrested again. And this was after returning to my um, high school to enroll in school. Yeah, they kicked you out of school too, didn't they? They kicked me out of school. I went to um, register uh, to enroll in school and was told by the principal that um, I would not be allowed to enroll in school due to my civil rights activities. They they sent you to Oakley. They sent me to Oakley. And this part of the story, I think it just blows my mind. I cannot I believe they did this to you. I spent six and a half months at Oakley. The training school. The training school. is a training school. I don't know if they had a training school for, for white youth. Yeah. But this was for black youth. Because you were considered, I guess, a troublemaker at that point. I was point. considered a troublemaker, yes. And your mom didn't and even know where you were. My mother did not know where I was for a period of time. And when she found out where I was, there was a, a group of them, um, this guy, Mr. Fred Bates, who mm -hmm. had a, a bus, and um, um, a number of 
my um, classmates and tried to, well, they, they entered Oakley and I saw all of this activity early morning yeah. outside of, the, uh, of this facility, this uh, institution and I wondered, what's going on? You saw the policeman there with the dogs and I mean, what's, what's happening? Didn't know until later that they were expecting the bus to, to visit me and they turned them around. There was a railroad track that was there. They turned them around at the track. My mother was a part of that group. They turned them around and refused them entry into the, um, the school. Why? I ponder why any of this. Right. You know. I mean, why? yeah, why were you in Oakley? And yes. why, yeah, why did you get kicked out of school? Why and... did I get kicked out of school? Right. Why did I get arrested? You know, there are a number of whys that has yet to be addressed. Right. And nobody has addressed them yet. I understand that, uh, what was the previous governor's name? Haley Barber. Haley Barber apologized to the Freedom Riders. But nor, nowhere have I seen that this has been expunged from our records. And given the tenor of, of today's world, right. there's nothing, uh, nothing to say that they can't come back to all of us with our crutches and wheelchairs and things to say, well, you committed this offense and you're going back to <laughs> <laughs> I have a strange feeling that that would be a big mistake if they tried to do that to you. I, I think so as well. <laughs> but I but the governor got involved. I mean, here you were at Oakley. You were there for six months. You had like a year sentence, right? And But how did the governor get involved into, into your case? Okay. That's misinformation as well. Okay. The sick, you know, I never received a sentence. Oh, you didn't? So you didn't I know did how not, long you were going to be there. I was told by Jack Young, who was the attorney for the civil rights uh, movement at that yeah. time, that I was to have been there until I reached legal age, which was 21. Okay. Okay. So, and this was, you know, months afterwards. So, well, how long am I? Well, you're probably going to be here, you know, until you're 21. I went, they sent me to Oakley without due process. Right. I never went back before the judge for a sentence or anything. When they took me from the jail in Pike County in Magnolia, mm -hmm. they told me they were taking me up to see my attorney. That's when they drove into the gates of Oakley Training School. That's when they drove into those those, those yards, the gates of Oakley Training School. And then Ross Barnett gave you the offer you can't refu you couldn't refuse. What it, was that offer? To to get out of the state, which was un unbelievable. He never made an offer to me. Oh, he didn't. He never made an offer to me. Yeah. When I knew anything. This man from Talladega College came to the training school. He had two black women with him and uh, 
Mama Turner, I always call her Mama Turner yeah. because she truly, you know, mothered and pampered and, you know, just tried to make us not feel imprisoned. Yeah. But to make us feel, she tried to pr make a home for us there at this facility. This man came late midnight, after midnight, to pick me up from the school. He had been before uh, Ross Barnett. Okay. Now, according to the attorney, and I think it's a matter of records, if the records still exist, they made every attempt to obtain my release. Yeah. They've had all kinds of writs, of, you know, Haber, writs of Haber's corpuses and everything, and they refused to release me. Um, Dr. King paid a $5,000 bond for my release. They refused to release me. So this man came from Talladega, and he went to uh, Ross Barnett and was able to obtain my release, well, it was a conditional release. Right. And the condition was that he would release me to him if he got me out of the state within 24 hours because he, the governor of this state, could not guarantee my safety. So here you were, you were eight, 17. 17 years old. Yes. And you couldn't, you literally had 24 hours to say goodbye to your mother and you had yes. to get out. Yes, yes. So that wasn't an offer. No, that wasn't. That wasn't an offer. I literally had 24 hours to leave the state. And to figure out what your life was gonna be. I guess they had figured for me because oh. he released me into the custody of this man from Talladega. Mm -hmm. Now, this is the thing that still pains me. This governor, and they have these papers somewhere, I don't know if it's still part of the Sovereignty Commission report or not, because many of the things that were part of the Sovereignty Commission report, they've taken or removed yeah. from that report. But the governor said that the reason, well, let me just kind of revert back here. After being with this man for several months, this man attempted to molest me. Oh. Now, this, 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 this is the thing that still pains me today. After being released to him and his attempt to molest me, I had to go on the run. I feel that the governor was complicit in this. Because how else and why else would you release me to this individual who you know nothing about? When everybody else had already tried to get you Absolutely. out. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We, unfortunately, the, the time is running a little bit low on the interview, but I, I do want to jump, because there's so, you've lived so much life between the moment you lived 
in the moment you came back. And I want you to touch a little bit on that life because you were out in California for a good bit of that time and you, you got a good education and you, you really became, you still were an activist and you were still pushing for what was right. What, 45 years later, you got an invitation to come back. That probably, that had to be a very tough decision to want to come back. It was a very tough decision to want to come back. Yeah. I had family in Mississippi. Yeah. I loved my family, but I had no love for Mississippi. None. But in spite of that, I took myself and said, chins up, you're going. You're going after getting beyond like the emotional part of it. Yeah. And uh, even being invited back by uh, an organization that Governor Winters had in, in Ole Miss, mm -hmm. a reconciliation conference. Mm -hmm. After being invited back, I felt again compelled to come. And I came back and was still denied an honorary high school diploma. But that did come. You did finally get that. Didn't you get that after 50 years? Didn't they do that? I got it after 50 years. It took them a while, but they finally did the right thing. Reconciliation. Yeah. The key word is reconciliation. Right. Tell us a little so. bit about Dr. Randall O'Brien, because I think he did something really <laughs> special. He did something, he did something that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, Dr. O'Brien, um, drove all the way from Texas, and I forget the name of the city that he was, he was uh, the president and provost. At Baylor. At when, Baylor University. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was a president and provost at Baylor University and he heard that I was going to be in Mississippi at the Reconciliation Conference. And it was so funny, I let think about it today about how this man sitting, and he usually tried to get front center, and he had very much that smile that you have now. <laughs> and I kept what? why is this white man looking at me? <laughs> so we were at the Macomb um, High School, and after that event at the Macomb High School, we didn't, they never even took us back to uh, Higgins until late that night. And then when I came off of the stage, he came around and he shook my hand and told me, he said, my name is Randall O'Brien. And he said, I got something for you tonight. He's from Mississippi, <laughs> yeah. Macomb. You're, right, you're like, like uh-oh, do I need to run? <laughs> no, I said to my brother, <laughs> my late, my, oh God rest his soul, he was, my brother was such a sweetheart. But I said to him, I said, uh, this white man came around there and he told me he got something from it tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I don't know what the heck it could be. I said, but you know what? I want you to stay close to me and whatever it is, take him down. <laughs> you know, if it looked like he's coming out with a weapon, yeah. take him down. <laughs> My brother had all of his grandchildren and everybody <laughs> surrounding the 
talked to O'Brien that night. He reached in his pocket. <laughs> You're like, I'm surprised your brother didn't tackle him. No, he waited patiently to see what he was coming out with. And he came out with this little box. And in this box, contained, contained in this box, was his Medal of Honor, his bronze star. Dr. O'Brien said to me, he said, you know, Brenda, he said, I tried to figure out what I was going to do with the star. He said, I thought about giving it to my son. And he said, I thought and thought and I figured, he said, I'm going to give this star to Brenda. He said, I, I think I'm, I, I, I know and believe that I'm doing the right thing. He said, this lady, he said, I fought for my country and this lady had to fight her country. Wow. So I want you to have this star. And I told him I will accept it proudly. And I have the star, but I don't have it on. And oh, yeah. many times I will place it on me. Yeah. Uh, but he, have, he presented me with his bronze star. We've kind of run out of time, but are there any final thoughts that you'd like to share? The final thoughts that I would like to share is that we are still in a dilemma, much like what we were in the 60s. Mm-hmm. We still have much work to do. We still need to come to the welcoming table to sit down, you know, and exchange ideals, you know, to talk with one another and try to eradicate if there's any such thing, try to eradicate this hatred Mm -hmm. that's permeating through our country today. We have much work yet left to be done. Well, I'm glad you're out there working and fighting, and it's always good to see you. It really is. Thank you. Now, I still want my picture. I know. You're you gonna think get your... you're going to sweet talk me out of it, oh. but you're not. No, you're going to get your picture. I promise. I'm not going to make you mad. <laughs> okay. Brenda, it's good to visit with you. Thank you. Thank you. you. The pleasure is mine. <laughs> <laughs>